what's happening is that the market can't anticipate what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Consumers, businesses can't anticipate, and uncertainty is is killer for an, an economy because you want to be able to plan for the future. Hi guys, I'm Ed Chung, and welcome to another episode of Thinking Cap. Danielle is off on vacation this week, as one does in August here in DC, so I am flying solo. Uh, as always, there's a lot happening this week, but one thing in particular that has people worried is the state of the economy. And because of that, we'll be revisiting a conversation from earlier this year with Ohio State University professor Derek Hamilton about how we can create a more inclusive economy. But before we get to that, uh, I want to f- highlight a few headlines as usual that have been driving the news this week. The president, President Trump, as he does always, not just in the summer, has been vacationing at his golf club in um, Bedminster, New Jersey. Uh, he still has managed to keep the country on edge. By the way, his uh, golf club or his resort in Scotland has been um, overvalued, if you want, um, as he, President Trump, and businessman Trump has often always done. Um, but while he was in New Jersey, um, one thing that he did that we have also come to expect of him is to backtrack on anything that he may have um, thought to pursue that may have been uh, a progressive idea. Uh, this time, it's been around the issue of gun violence. If you remember, right after the shootings in El Paso, Texas, and Dayton, Ohio, Trump had indicated uh, a degree of support, at least verbally at this point, to pursue universal background checks. But he had a conversation with NRA President Wayne LaPierre, and predictably, he backtracked. And now he's saying that we have enough, uh, the background checks are robust enough, and he's gone on to uh, misdiagnose the issue, if you will, and blame people with mental health issues. It's just a uh, a typical thing that we've come to expect of this president um, whenever there is any type of possibility to advance anything progressive when it comes to gun violence or other issues uh, we cannot count on this president uh, the past two and a half years have shown that clearly also uh, to boost his uh, our, our, our thought of his sanity and his mental well-being um, President Trump has also proposed to buy Greenland from Denmark. I, I, I literally said that out loud. And we as a country have, over the last couple of days, had to endure the ridicule of the world of us trying to actually propose that, or at least the president actually trying to propose that. Needless to say, uh, the prime minister of Denmark said no. And that's that. So uh, we have a very sane, very mentally stable president in the White House. Um, One of the things that had been boosting him all along was uh, the state of the economy. But the the public's trust in President Trump uh, and his handling of the economy is starting to wane. Uh, The stock market recently had took a big tumble um, because of things that I particularly don't know about, but that's why we have in studio with us our colleague here at the Center for American Progress, Benga Agilor. Uh, Benga, tell us what is happening with the economy. Tell us why people are throwing around the word recession um, and what's kind of undergirding all of this. Well, thank you for having me, Ed. So what's happening right now is that there's certain indicators that kind of 
kind of give us an idea that there might be a recession coming. And the big one is the what's called the yield curve. And so this basically compares uh, bond, market, uh, bond rates between the 10-year and short-term rates. So to do quickly, if you think about what's called like a 10-year treasury note, it's like you're lending the government money. And so you get the money back 10 years from now. Now, the interest rate on that should be much higher than, say, a three-month one because the government's only borrowing your money for a short period of time. What happens is that when the yield curve inverts, the interest rate on the three-month is greater than the interest rate on the 10-year. And so what that says is that is that you have less faith in the economy. You have less faith in the government because you want your money more currently than you w- would in the long term. So you don't and, want to park your money as long, or you don't, you're not even incentivized to park your money as long in treasury bonds as you would in short-term treasury bonds. Exactly. And so the last couple of times that the yield curve has inverted, they've predated recessions. This is not uh, always true, and it's also not a causal effect. It's not like, oh, the yield curve reverts, we're going to have a recession in nine months. A lot of it is that it's more of a proxy of how people, how the market, how investors are thinking about the economy. And so then what it does is that it provides a kind of context if there's some sort of triggering event. So if you think about the last time the yield curve inverted was about two, 2007. And then we had the housing market collapse, which then predated the Great Recession. So what we have to be concerned about is, are there things that are going to happen in the economy now that would trigger recessions, say, like a trade war or something like that? And one of the things that progressives have been very careful of, um, especially in recent times, and our conversation with Derek Hamilton gets into this, is to rely on things like the stock, uh, the stock market and Wall Street to determine whether or not, or to determine the health of our economy. But some of the other uh, underlying policy decisions that the Trump administration has pursued um, is really causing fears, finally, in the stock market, things like uh, our trade policy with China. Um, what are things like that? Um, as a senior economist, how are you evaluating um, our, our uh, policies with regard to other countries, our trade policies? How is that affecting your outlook? Well, very concerning because our trade war with China is very haphazard. There's no strategy behind it. While there's some practices that China does that we are concerned about, the way the administration is going about it is the wrong way. And it's very haphazard. It's, you know, policy by tweet. And so, you know, you look at what's happening. And then, you know, just recently he announced that on September 1st, he was going to announce something like $300 billion on a lot of electronics. Now they pulled back because they were concerned about what's, how that's going to impact the consumers. So they pushed that to December 15th. You're talking about tariffs on those electronic goods. Yeah, tariffs on those goods. And that freaked a lot of people, you know, honestly, you know, about that. And so what's happening is that the market can't anticipate what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Consumers, businesses can't anticipate. And uncertainty is is killer for an, an economy because you want to be able to plan for the future. So you're thinking about, and the reasons why they kind of pushed that back was they know that you're thinking about the Christmas season mm-hmm. and you're thinking about purchases and businesses are thinking about what's, what are, are we going to stock. And if they know that their goods are going to be more expensive, they're going to have to pass that on to consumers and that's having an impact on them. On the other to- on the other side, if you think about agriculture and farm- farmers, one of the biggest uh, importers of our goods is China. And with the trade war, he's totally taken that off the table, which is has a detrimental impact to our farmers. Now, he's provided subsidies for them, but it, they pale in comparison. And even more kind of uh, frustrating is that over 95% of those subsidies have gone to wealthy corporate farms and wealthy, you know, white farmers. And that's not going to help. 
One of the things that you've been looking into is actually this issue of rural America and the uh, what makes up rural America and um, farmers especially. And your research and your work has uh, talked about the diversity of what's in rural America. Just give a touch on a little bit about that. So a lot of times when we hear about, especially politically, about rural America, we hear about you know either farmers or the working class. And so the image that comes up or the image that you see on TV is some white farmer on a tractor. But it's not that. So rural America is a lot more diverse, a lot more broad. We have people of color. We have people of the disability community, LGBT uh, people. And we also have a diversity of industries. So it's not just farming. It's not just manufacturing. It's service sector. And so the reason why our work focuses on that is because our policies have to address that. Policies have to look at that. And so going back to the economy, we talk about we've had this long recovery, about 10 years. But there are certain areas, especially in rural America, so that's not just the Midwest, but the Great Plains, the South, the Southwest. Those places still haven't recovered. And the policies by this administration has done nothing to help those people out. I think one of the things that they've been trying to push so much is this tax cut that passed uh, last year, but that only helps a certain select number of people, especially the ones at the top, both in terms of individuals and corporations. And so this kind of trickle-down thing that we've uh, been fed over the past 40 years or so, uh, plus um, still is perpetuating, but w- looks like the economy may take a, at least a bit of a downturn uh, in the future, um, and that, that potentially could affect Trump's standing and what he could also potentially do. What have you been hearing about things that he's said recently about um, fixes, if you will? I mean, we, he's, he's blamed the Federal Reserve. He's, he's done a couple other things. What else have you heard? So one of the things that came up recently is talking about a payroll tax cut. And so what I want to do is actually take a step back and talk about this Tax Cut and Jobs Act that was passed in December 2017. And it's, it's one of those things where this was unnecessary. It was poorly targeted. It only went to corporations and went to the wealthy. And the administration and the economic advisors there were talking about, well, this is going to boost the economy. Now, first of all, we've had a long recovery, and so this is not the time to boost. Time to boost was back in 2010, 2011, 2013, when Republicans in the Senate were trying to push for austerity, saying that we can't do that. And so what's happened now is that this has only gone to corporations. Now, the argument was that, oh, you give corporations money, we see more business investment that translates to higher wages. We saw none of that. In fact, in quarter two, business investment was actually negative. So that shows that it didn't work. And the fact that they even floating a payroll tax cut shows that the administration understands it didn't work. But again, they talk about, you know, well, we need to do stuff with corporate tax rates and things like that to help boost the economy. And time and time again, they keep missing the boat. They're not focusing on the right people, the people who we should target. Ben Agilor, Senior Economist here at the Center for American Progress. Thank you for joining us. We're going to continue this conversation uh, with Derek Hamilton, a pre-recorded one. Um, I think you'll enjoy that as well. Um, before we get to that, want to make sure that uh, you uh, follow us on Twitter at ThinkingCapPod. Um, as we told you last week, we have a big announcement that's going to come up that you don't want to miss. So follow us at ThinkingCapPod. Um, you could also tweet at us. Uh, feel free to tweet at us directly. Uh, my Twitter handle is at EdChungDC, at EdChungDC. And Daniela's is at DGibber123. That's D-G-I-B-B-E-R-123. And now here's our conversation with Derek Hamilton.
Professor Hamilton, thanks for joining us on Thinking Cap. Uh, we uh, are here at the Ideas Conference, and you just came off of a panel that uh, you were talking about a lot of the issues facing uh, communities across the country, especially when we're talking about economics, about uh, economic inequality, how obviously certain uh, communities are being left behind, black and brown communities specifically. Can you just, before we get into that, just stepping back about what the status or the state of the economy is right now, because obviously we hear things not only coming from the administration, but in popular media about, you know, this economy is just chugging along and job, you know, job growth is, is at, you know, or unemployment is at, you know, all time lows, et cetera, et cetera. What's the, what's the real, what's the actual state of the economy right now? It's almost like apples to orange comparisons to use the same indicators of economic well-being today that we've used in the past because the economy today is fundamentally different than when it was in the past. A great deal of the risk are now on individuals and family with regards to social insurance, with, with regards to things like a pension, with regards to a stable job, with regards to health care. Um, so to use the same indicators that we used in the past when what it means to have a job is a lot more insecure than what it was in the past is, is problematic. So if we had some measure of secure job or a job with decent wages, a job with decent benefits, um, perhaps then we could start uh, beating our chest at how well the economy is doing. Um, but right now we are doing a sleight of hand with certain measures that's not really indicative of um, the inequality and despair that many Americans are feeling. So is this a recent phenomenon? I mean, how recent of a phenomenon is, is what we're talking about here? Economic Policy Institute should be credited with producing a report that I think sums up the American trajectory um, it very vividly. In that report, they look at basically a one-to-one -one ratio of productivity gains with wage gains up to 1973. And then at that point, productivity gains continued to rise, but there was a divergent. Wages, real wages, remained flat and didn't rise. And that could be a key juncture in our society by which we began this um, so-called free market revolution where um, we basically created a, a portfolio of policies that facilitated accumulation at the top, things like lowering taxes, things like deregulation, things like assaults on unions and the ability to collectively bargain. Uh, there's a report I did with uh, Roosevelt Institute, Julie Morgan and Nellie Abernathy, where we talk about a one-two punch uh, of how we got here. So the first punch would be those things that I just described, taxes and deregulation. The second punch was an assault on government and an assault on social welfare programs where race was used in a strategic way where we demonized poor people by basically, I'm going to use slightly bad word, niggerizing them. Basically demonizing them as being somehow deficient, somehow trying to con the system. We used imageries of, of welfare queens, imageries of deadbeat dads, and they were really hyper-racialized. Um, so that was one way. And then the other way was that government was deemed inefficient, inept. Government, anything that the government would do was deemed as uh, not being able to accomplish things. And, you know, in a historical context, that free market revolution 
was a backlash against a lot of the gains that came about from New Deal, as well as um, some of the civil rights gains. Um, so in, in response to uh, this egalitarian society um, that dissipated both the political and economic power at the top, we had this counter-revolution. And then let, let me just, I know I'm rambling on, but I'll say another no, key component. <laughs> another key component that was able to solidify this was race. Um, race is not an issue. We talk about race as if it's an issue. We talk about um, policies, then we say, well, let's think about race. Race is a pillar. It was, how do you get a population to go along with this status quo of growing inequality? Well, you solidify their horizontal positioning. You tell, you, you offer them, you say, however unequal we are in terms of a vertical positioning, however unequal you are in that ladder of vertical inequality, at least you're not them. At least you're not black, at least you're not an immigrant, at least you're not this other population. That is the political mechanism, which it's not just trivial, there are material and psychological benefits of not being black in America. When we have an economic downturn, there are material benefits associated with not being the first fired. Um, there are material benefits in, a, uh, in an economy of not being the first fired or last hired, and um, that is the compromise that's offered in exchange for this growing vertical inequality. So you just laid out several daunting um, and, and troubling things that have been going on for several decades. So, in a 15-minute interview, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to solve the world's problems right now. Problems. Yeah. Well, how do you how do you start to walk some of that back? How do you start to change that? Is it you literally have to make people come to an agreed understanding on what the problem actually is? Is that the first step? Oh yeah, I think that you you just summed up the first step. <laughs> One, we need to change these narratives. We need truth. Mm. We need um, an honest integrity of how we got here and why we are here. Um, and then we need to redefine our economic well-being beyond just the selfish notions associated with my individual well-being, which knows no bound and is ultimately not sustainable. This whole notion of, um, you know, in economics we talk about the, what, the economic man that, that just wants to keep accumulating. Young people and social movements today are trending towards redefining our well-being in terms of our common humanity, in terms of justice, in terms of sustainability. I think that's where we need to go from a political standpoint and a rhetorical standpoint to change course. Now, in terms of economics, none of these policies that we're talking about in terms of federal job guarantee, in terms of Medicare for all, um, none of these policies are new, nor are they radical. This is our history from where we were going. Uh, now, unfortunately, they were not done in a racially inclusive way, mm -hmm. and sometimes not in a gender inclusively way either. Mm -hmm. So now we need to revert back to that trajectory where we had the next, the next plateau, which was an economic bill of rights, so that we had a government with a purpose of ensuring that people had the adequate resources so that they can really be self-determining, so that they really could have agency in their lives. 
To me, that is the blueprint towards how we can have a much better society. Mm -hmm. So whenever you or anybody else talks about kind of the collective, the automatic reaction, not only from conservatives, but from neoliberals or from just a general populace is going to be, especially in this climate, the whole S word, right? Socialism <laughs> and so forth, coming. right? You do, right? <laughs> and so, I mean, and so what is that kind of, like how much work has to be done to, uh, to get that over the top in terms yeah. of not only the narrative, um, but especially the narrative, I should say. Well, these terms are often rhetorical. Yeah. I mean, when we bailed out the banking sector, was that capitalism? Right. Mm. I mean, when we do a whole lot of interventions from the state with regards to propping up businesses, is that capitalism? Mm -hmm. uh, no, it's not. Um, so, and I'm not even talking about doing away with the entire private sector. What I'm talking about and others have, have been talking about is using, repurposing public power. Mm -hmm. And again, I, I will give credit to Roosevelt Institute for um, being spot on in this, repurposing public power to offer the resources that people need to have agency in their lives. So basically, public options. Mm -hmm. So why not a public option to finance so that if you are poor and destitute, you don't have to turn to check cashing, pay, uh, payday lenders, or other predatory finances um, when you have an economic downturn and lose your job and, and simply need some carryover finance till you get the next check that, that comes to you. Um, why not repurpose the public to provide a federal job guarantee to ensure that if a private sector wants to hire our workers, they have to hire those workers with good working conditions so that um, a woman who is a waitress in a restaurant doesn't have to put up with sexual harassment in order to feed her family so that she has a viable alternative that she can go to to better bargain and um, um, better, uh, what's the word, better, better negotiate the terms of, of the ways in which she works because she's not offered that threat of being destitute if, if she were to even try and put up a fight. That's what we need the public purpose for. If, you know, that's not socialism, um, or maybe it has socialistic aspects, um, but it really is the government doing what they were, what, what the government is purposed to do in the first place, which is to provide for the social welfare. And I think one of the things that you said at the beginning was um, regarding the attack on the efficiency of, and the effectiveness of government, right? Um, it's something that is kind of wrapped up in all of this. It's, but when you're stepping back and looking at the effectiveness and efficiency of you know, capitalism and companies and corporations, I mean, are there, what, can you make that comparison and say, look, there are, there are you know, problems in both and so forth in a very generalistic you know, way. Um, but, it seemed, but the effectiveness of the attack on government and governmental institutions seems to have really carried the day over the last you know, 30, 40 years. And in part, the way it has become effective is because they were able to link the government with somehow being in favor of black people mm, yeah. in some way in response to the civil rights movement, right? Oftentimes when government is demonized, they're demonized in a racial, in a racial way. Um, but from a technical standpoint, we absolutely know that there are things that the government will do better than the private sector. Uh, we absolutely know from a public good standpoint in economics, there are um, economies of scale associated with being big. Um, but even aside from some of the productivity purposes, there's a role for government to, again, discipline the market. 
to discipline the market so that the market is not just extractive or exploitive, um, the government has to play a role in empowering people so that they can counterbalance some of the inordinate power that can accrue when capital does what it does best, which is concentrate and iteratively accumulate. Yeah. So I want to ask a question about reparations, uh, which is a topic that seems to be getting a lot of attention recently. Uh, so I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on what you and other people want to hear from policymakers when they're talking about reparations. Like, it's very easy to kind of give this topic lip service, but like, what would you want to hear from somebody that would indicate to you that they are at least being serious and thoughtful about the topic? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, reparations to get implemented is going to have to come from the people. It's going to have to be a movement. Uh, the fact that politicians are being held accountable with regards to their views on reparations is indicative to me of a change in the way we think about race, which is very different from years past, and I'm ecstatic about that. Mm -hmm. In years past, the race conversation always reduced to education, mm -hmm. and the other, other thing that it would reduce to was um, black capitalism. How can we uh, create more black entrepreneurs? That, that was, those were the two areas and domains that we've talked about race. I guess, to, in fairness, we started to talk a little bit about race and criminal justice. But now, the conversation is to the point where we're talking about a history, a long-standing history of government complicit fraud, terror, and extraction, and now we're at the point where we're trying to redress that history, I'm ecstatic by that. Um, but ultimately, I, I know that regardless of what any particular politician says, in order to, for us to get reparations, and I believe this will occur, it's going to take a social movement to get us there. It's going to take a, two, a true reckoning that we are going to, with authenticity, authority, look back in our history and um, recognize with integrity how we got here and then offer not just a simple apology but some redress to go along with that. I think that that is when our nation can heal racially and move forward. And, and I'll say one other thing about that. You know, the mechanism of doing that interrogation of our history, not only does it benefit black people with, with, uh, with, with an apology, I used a bad word earlier in the podcast when I say we niggerize the poor, um, it will allow us to defeat those false narratives about poverty more broadly. It will allow us to really recognize that poor people are not as a group, right? We can find anecdotes that are rich, anecdotes that are poor, that are con artists, but <laughs> dare I say, <laughs> look, I'm about to get in trouble. We, we have a president that has pulled the wool over us in many, in many ways. Um, but oh, Daniela said, said worse than that about okay. yeah. <laughs> right. The con artist man, baby, it's fine. <laughs> um, um, but at the end of the day, having that, that, that authentic interrogation of our history refutes those narratives not only for blacks but for poor people in general. So um, going back to the original question, because I kind of dodged it, the, one of the best things... One of the best things that politicians can do is really pass some version of H.R. 40 where we put in place a commission to really think about uh, how we got here and what the proper redress should be. Mm -hmm. So 
I take it from your answer that you don't think that this can be done in a piecemeal fashion or even on kind of like an issue by issue fashion. Absolutely not. I think that those are, you know, when we think about certain policies, they might be good economic policies mm -hmm. and they might be policies that are race conscious mm -hmm. and universal. Um, but for reparations, it needs to be tied to a specific offense or set of offenses and the recipients need to be um, those that were harmed by it or descendants of those that were harmed by it. I think that, that, that anything else, again, those could be really good economic policies, yeah. but in a way it bastardizes reparations. And a lot of the, uh, some of the talk around reparations is the form that it would take. Is it too early to have that discussion or is it more that, I mean, is there a concrete thing that needs to happen in addition to economic policy generally yeah. and so forth? I don't think it's too early to have that conversation. Yeah. I mean, we know from examples as well as economic theory that simply offering someone a check is not going to be the solution to redress the harms that were committed. Why? Not because those individuals might misuse their check or, or uh, engage in some malfeasance, but rather it is ownership of the means of production or ownership of the land that allows one to have in perpetuity some income from an asset. So when we think about redress for reparations, the symbolism of a check, this notion that we're gonna offer you something for you to use without conditions, that's important. Um, but the, the foundation of the redress would need to come in some sort of asset or capital form where you can get benefits and income in perpetuity. So I want to ask a question about the current economy and black unemployment. Um, as we have seen the national unemployment rate decrease, the black unemployment rate has also decreased, you know, obviously on very different tracks. Mm -hmm. uh, but in recent months, it seems that the black employment rate is starting to tick back up. And I'm just curious to get your thoughts on why you think that is, what's happening, um, you know, what should we be uh, most concerned about here with this trajectory? Yeah, you know, um, in some ways that two to one unemployment ratio happens whether we're in good times or bad times, yep. there's some fluctuation around it. Um, ultimately, as long as we have racism in this society, until we're really ready to address that, we're gonna have that two to one disparity. Um, I don't get too excited about the numbers that people have been touting about uh, black unemployment being its lowest in, 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 uh, since we've been recording unemployment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I guess in slavery we had the lowest unemployment. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> speak on it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so I don't get too, too excited by that because, as I mentioned earlier, the nature of work has changed. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the, the uptick, you're going to get fluctuations, period. Um, we know in general that that adage of first fired, last hired, so you may be on to something that I haven't thought about. Maybe this is signs of, of an economy that might be swinging in another direction because of the uptick with blacks. I don't know, so I, you know, I, I would be speculating. But uh, I think the fundamental point is that the nature of work has changed and this ratio of two to one needs to also to, needs to change if we want to really have a, a economy that's founded in, that has a foundation in justice. We're gonna shift gears a little bit here. And uh, we always like to get to know our guests a little bit more. <laughs> I have never been somebody as a student, either in undergrad or, or law school or anything, to ever get to know my professors, which, you know. 
So this is all going to happen right now. This, is, I mean, this is my first like effort at this. I wish I had something spicy like I was dating a movie star or something. But sorry. All right, let me check that question off. No, I won't ask that question. Um, you know, what do you like to do in your spare time? I mean, do you do you live and breathe yeah. your subject matter? Uh, let's see. Uh, there was a time when I played basketball, but these old knees can't do that anymore. Um, let, and I love people. That's the God's honest truth. Yeah. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. If I'm engaging with good friends, the, the event almost is a prop. So, uh, you know, to answer your question, my life has evolved a little bit lately and that um, this is consuming large parts of my life. Like I don't, the, the good thing is I enjoy what I do. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's great pleasure. Um, but the other benefit of what I do is it takes me to places and I get to meet people like you all. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and I really, like right now, I feel like I've, I've really much, very, very much enjoyed this, this interview and uh, feel connected to you. Yeah. So I, I think uh, an attribute of mine that I'm proud of is that I have a good ability to meet people and engage with people and I feed off of that. That's great. You, you know, Ed, I was I was gonna ask, my question is, I like to know what trashy TV people watch <laughs> that they maybe don't wanna talk about. It's okay, like I watched The Bachelorette. See, I went first. <laughs> CNN and MSNBC. <laughs> that was a joke, that was a joke, that was only a joke. That was a joke, please take that in the spirit that was mentioned, okay. that's a joke. Um, we'll quote no. edit that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, I like, uh, Obviously, I was watching Game of Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with, with trashy TV, I, you know, I missed the shows like New York, New York. I used to watch that in Flavor of Love. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I did engage in all that. Yes. <laughs> right, but, the golden age of reality TV. <laughs> but the sad reality is that we are in a period where, um, I was just saying it tongue-in-cheek as a joke, but um, I've begun to watch the news as a reality mm. TV show. And, that, and that's not a good thing. Yeah, yeah unfortunately. <laughs> Professor, you have to bring us back to Earth like that. I mean, I, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. It's true. It it's is all true. true. It's all true. true. Yeah. <laughs> Professor, thank you so much thank for being you. here with thank us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Thinking Cap is produced and edited by Kyle Epstein. He also wrote our music. Rachel Rosen is our supervising producer. Chris Ford is our researcher. And Matt Ingram created our logo. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, and AmericanProgress.org.